They say that Mark Twain made the statement that history may not repeat itself, but it, but it does rhyme. This is Ferguson Voices, Disrupting the Frame, a moral courage project presented by Proof, Media for Social Justice, and the University of Dayton Human Rights Center. I'm Jada Woods. Act two, history's rhyme. While the town of Ferguson is like any average suburb, the events that occupied its streets in late 2014 were certainly unique. It's not often that America sees its citizens actively at war with its police, let alone over such a traumatic period of time. Whatever your vantage point, it felt like history in the making. The community's response to Michael Brown's death was urgent and immediate. Although accelerated and amplified as it was by night vision, live streams, and shaky news cameras, the events in Ferguson were filtered through the lens of slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, segregation, mass incarceration, and predatory policing. The shooting was not an isolated event, presenting a distilled example of historic forces at work a culmination of a timeline that began long ago. But the ghosts of ancestors and the spirits of freedom fighters inspired Ferguson protesters to confront this legacy of oppression. The words of black intellectuals and rhymes of hip-hop MCs provided the rationale. Those present report an awareness of their place on this timeline. But how will this moment stand in the long journey of history? Will it be a transformative pivot point or barely a blip? eclipsed by some event that we can't anticipate. Only the future knows how Ferguson will be judged, but it is clear that Ferguson connected to its history to make history. The first, I remember the first demonstration was a, it was a, it was a hot day, it was a long march from Canfield to the, you know, St. Mark's Church felt like forever. It was, you know, a bazillion degrees outside and, and I'm, you know, just huffing and puffing to get through this this long march, and, and I remember um, calling one of my friends and saying, mm, "I think that's my last march. I think I'm gonna be one of the elders that stay behind the church and make sandwiches for the marchers, or or, or stand at a water station and pass out water bottles or something." I was like, "I'm just too old, for, you know, for doing this. My knees hurt, my back hurt. Oh, I'm just having those kind of feelings." And then I got home, was like. Nope, that will not be my response. If I have to go to the gym every day so I can be in shape in order to be able to continue to see this through, then that's what I'm going to do. A self-described senior statesman among the crowd of protesters, Rudy Nickens, is a seasoned businessman and educator. He has devoted significant time to training in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors on issues of diversity and inclusion. Rudy also served as an outside consultant to the Ferguson Commission, the group appointed by the governor to study and facilitate processes aimed at healing and sustainable changes across the region. Today, he is the Director of Equal Opportunity and Diversity for the Missouri Department of Transportation. When Ferguson popped off, Rooney knew what to do. Well, you know, these are not my first demonstrations. <laughs> you know, I've been going to demonstrations since I was eight. It's, it's So it doesn't strike me particularly as anything so different than any other group of thousands of human beings coming together to stand up against some form of bigotry or oppression, um, which is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And this was consistent with the other demonstrations throughout my life that, that I participated in. Rudy doesn't focus on political or cultural shifts, but on the sense that through the experience of showing up and being present, individual people can stand a little taller, 
a little prouder. Some months before the, before the 63 March in Washington, there was a, a rally in the, on the, the ball field of the elementary school near, near, near my house that my family, my brothers, my sister, my mom, my dad, all, and we went to this thing. It was my introduction to, to this kind of movement. And I didn't know anything. I mean, I might have been seven or eight years old. I didn't know anything about what was going on. And so, you know, you do what your parents say, we go. And there's hundreds of people in my neighborhood. And I grew up, at this point, I lived in, in, in the projects in Northeast D.C. And there's hundreds of people in my neighborhood who were like going down the hill to this field for this thing. And so I stood there and I heard this message and I don't know what he was talking about. I don't remember any of the words that he said, no content of the, of the evening um, words you know, stayed with me. But the effect of seeing my dad and, and, other, and other adults who, who lived in, in, in these impoverished ways that we lived, who struggled with a lot of things like being drunk a lot and you know, looking broken and broken down and hurt and just beat down you know, in many ways, really hard life people, um, that day looked better than they'd ever looked before. Like, and that was like, that's what changed me. Like, I was like, that's the dad I want. I want that man whose shoulders are that far back, whose chest is that far out, whose head is this high. Rudy has been present in history before, and his experience left a profound impression on him. My dad took me to the, the 1963 March on Washington where Dr. King gave I Have a Dream of Speech when I was eight years old, and it changed my life. You know, it changed my life. I remember seeing um, my dad and, and other people uh, look bolder and taller and um, more proud than I'd ever seen them look. You know? And it has followed me as a, as, a, as, a, as a theme throughout my life that there's power in this kind of movement. Um, and wherever, whatever the, you know, it doesn't matter if it was gay liberation or, or, or the freeze or, you know, or support of women's rights for, for choice, it doesn't matter. There's something really important about standing together and being a part of the community and being a part of the movement. The March on Washington movement a campaign that began 20 years before the march that Rudy attended took shape in cities across the country, including St. Louis. One of the most successful march on Washington movements in the country when, we, when that movement was kicked out in 1942, 9,000 people showed up at Kill Auditorium. That was one of the biggest crowds that was attracted in the country with that march on Washington movement. Gwen Moore is a curator at the Missouri History Museum focusing on race, ethnicity, and race relations in the region. Recently, Gwen's work has involved documenting the Ferguson protest movement. A historian's perspective permits a deeper sense of context into the overlooked history of St. Louis civil rights activism. When you think about the civil rights movement, you probably think about the South, the Deep South, because that's where the national focus was. But there was a civil rights movement beyond the Deep South, now, St. Louis was different from the Deep South because, first of all, Missouri was different. We were a slave state. We had Jim Crow in this state, but we had no Jim Crow laws. So we only had two racially restrictive laws on the book. One was blacks and whites had to go to separate schools. That was mandated. That was in the law. And the other was that blacks and whites could not marry. And later they added Mongolians. Whites and Mongolians could not marry. So I always say, I guess it was all right if blacks and Mongolians married. But those were the only two racially restrictive laws on the books. So that was different from the South. 
that we didn't have those laws. We never had black restrooms, white restrooms. So we were more segregated by custom, by tradition, than by law. So even though there was nothing that said you could not go into a white theater, you didn't go because you knew you couldn't. You didn't have to have a law that says you couldn't go. You didn't have to have signs. You just knew. The other thing is that blacks always had the franchise here. With the passage of the 15th Amendment, there was never that sort of resistance that there was in the South. You know, the South instituted grandfather clauses, white primaries, literacy tests. That never happened here. 1865, blacks got the votes, and we were always able to vote. We didn't have the kind of violence that they had in the Deep South. You know, everybody knows about those dogs and the hoses and pulling people off of uh, stools when they wouldn't set in. We had sit-ins here. We had some of the earliest sit-ins, in fact, in the country. And, and the earliest sit-ins were like 1942. In 1944, we started having sit-ins here. And there was never any violence. I think well, the only time we had violence was the Fairgrounds Park race riot. And of course, everybody knows about the East St. Louis race riot. There was never this national spotlight on what we were doing here but we were doing things just the same. So we do have the civil rights history, a very active civil rights history, a very vigorous civil rights history that is probably one of the best kept secrets <laughs> in history. Even in here and in our own city, people don't even know about this history. History delivers memories to inspire, but it also casts a shadow. Impossible to escape and irresponsible to forget. History teaches that while Mike Brown's murder was tragic, it was predictable just another incident in the long trajectory of state violence. Ferguson was not a flaw in the system. It was a feature. This system was never made to protect us. And, you know, when you have the police department, which is just a uh, upgrade from slave patrols, then you understand what's happening out here. You understand what happens when Michael Brown is walking down the street in the neighborhood that his family lives in and a police officer stops him because this is a slave patrol. So this like, this is not anything new. It's just that we call them police now. Koach Baruch Fraser, or KB, is a transgender Jewish audiologist identified for his audible contribution to the protest. They said we're gonna take the street for four and a half hours because that's how long Mike's body was laid in the street. First it was just people were just trying to figure out what was gonna happen because like things were just happening in real time. You didn't, things weren't really being planned, it just happened. So somebody started saying, sitting down for Michael Brown, sitting down for Michael Brown, sitting down for Michael Brown. And um, I happened to play djembe and so my djembe was in my car and I went down the street, got my djembe out the car and I started playing and that's kind of history of how I started in the movement. Um, it was because I heard the chant and I thought it needed to be. Things kind of got really electric. People were up, they were doing whatever, dancing, moving to the beat. And I had never done this before in my life. Um, but I figured if we're gonna have to move, we're gonna need a beat. And so that's what happened. I would just go for hours and we, I would play, people would chant and we just walk the streets um, in the, at, at nighttime. So um, a lot of people have said, you know, later on, they said, you know, if, if I knew that if you, were, if you were going and you were playing that drum and you were carrying that heavy drum and you were still, you were still uh, marching, then I knew that we could keep going. With a purpose, KB showed up every night to move and mobilize the crowd. He showed up to represent and to fight for a kind of freedom that connects all people. As a queer person, KB confronted tensions within the protest community 
that often bubbled up at the intersection of diverse identities and interests. To be in the same room with people that, you know, for, for some of those folks, we were in front of them taking tear gas. We were the ones taking the heat from the police, but all of a sudden we were a problem. And I reminded them of uh, Baird Rustin, and I said, so we've been through this before. This is something we've seen before. Bayard took one for the team, right? Like he, he was the one who single-handedly made sure that the March on Washington happened. They tried to demonize him because he was gay and he was out and open about that. But that wasn't gonna stop me from fighting for freedom because my freedom's tied up with yours. So if I give up on you, like you giving up on me, we ain't never gonna win. Not willing to be resigned to second class, KB testifies to the centrality of a queer role in the Ferguson movement. Others also attest that the vanguard, the first responders, are not the faces we commonly picture when we see images from Ferguson. Will history remember them? So let's be clear about this. The demonstrations and protests, it all started with mothers, not with kids and things like that. It started with mothers of young people who were the age of Michael Brown. It started with them. And then these young people came out. And then other concerned citizens came out. And then the picture takers came out. So if you're going to do the narrative, just make sure you put the mamas in front where they belong. Professor Stephen Bradley studies and teaches history at St. Louis University. In particular, history of youth activism and the black struggle for racial justice. It hardly feels like an accident then that he first learned about the shooting of Michael Brown from his students. Protesting was not an obvious choice for Stefan, given the demands of professional and personal life. But he went out repeatedly with his students because he connected the events he was living to the history he taught them about. I had a student of mine text me and say, a boy got shot out in the Canfield Green Apartments. But then my student kept texting me to let me know that they hadn't picked up the body yet. Uh, And so two hours went by, and then three hours, and then four hours went by. And he was telling me that the people were getting rowdy. And and then about midnight, I got a text from even a different student who said that he was worried about another student who had been pepper sprayed and tear gas, pelted with rubber bullets. I had taught both of these students who were out that night I had taught them about the black freedom movement. I had taught them about black power and civil rights. And, and, and uh, I, I had told them about Stokely Carmichael and H. Rap Brown and, and Angela Davis and, and all of these people, uh, Ella Baker. I told them about all of them. And I told them, like, um, I know you care about justice. I don't need you to, to be any kind of martyr for, for, for any reason. Like, I, I get that you care about it. And they told me, well, we'll be out again tonight. Uh, and so I said, well, don't go. Uh, and, and they said, well, we're going. Uh, and so I said, well, if you're going, then I'm going. And so that was the, the day that I met him out. As somebody who, who studies black people, who's made a living from studying black people, as somebody who studies uh, uh, student activism and protest and black power, it would be a sin if I didn't go out and be with the people at this very moment. Stefan went out to protest with his students, night after night, after work, after putting his newborn baby to bed, with his wife holding it down at home. He was out the night of the non-indictment, a night imprinted in his memory. On that night, uh, it's hard because this is, like, it all comes back. It's, um, on that night, uh, I was on South Florissant. 
uh, across from the police station. And, um, and it was strangely typical that night. There were a bunch of people milling about. The road had been shut down because the people were in the middle of the road. The cars were beaten. They were playing fuck the police and all that kind of stuff, which was regular. And the drums were out. This is the one thing, like, there was always noise. There was always noise. Like, that's what I remember about everything. Like, there was always noise. And so everything is regular. And then I heard the one thing that I hadn't heard in all of my days out there on the street, and that was quiet. I had never heard quiet. I had never, never, never heard quiet. And all the days we went out there, it was always noise. It was always sirens. It was always chants. It was always something. And everybody was listening to their cell phones uh, as Robert McCullough was explaining in great detail why he was not going to indict Officer Darren Wilson. I had noticed a group of people on top of a car, and I thought that was regular too. Because on those nights, this is stuff that people, if you're not here, you wouldn't know. Like People would ride by on top of cars. So all this stuff is just regular. So I saw people on top of a car, and probably about four or five, maybe six minutes in, I hear this moan like that I, I pray God I never hear again. Like the moan of a woman, and it turns out, I guess, it was, it was Mike Brown's mom that was up on the car, and, uh, and I hear people starting to shout. I hear dudes talking about, I'm going to get my heater. Uh, I hear car tires screeching. I hear gunshots, pow, pow, pow. I mean, it felt like all the air was sucked out of the atmosphere. Let me explain it to you this way. I've never in my life experienced frenzy. Like, I've never experienced that. Like, I've never, I've never understood what it was to be in a situation where sanity will not rule. Like, so you'd be dumb as hell to stop at the stoplight because you're gonna get hit and ran over. Like, you'd be dumb as hell to drive on the right side of the road because the garbage cans are burning on the right side of the road. Like, you would be dumb as hell if you think you shouldn't drive on the sidewalk. Nothing was sane. Like, nothing was right. And people, you could see it in people's eyes. And I'm not trying to be dramatic or anything like that, but I just, I, I had never seen anything like this. Throughout his time, Stefan prioritized one singular objective. As an historian, he was acutely aware of how stories get remembered, how narratives get written, and whose perspectives get forgotten, written out of history. Stefan felt his role was to use his position to center the experiences of the thugs and the throwaways. I never had much of an original thought. Uh, I would say what the people on the ground were saying. We would have certain demands, certain ideas that needed to be communicated. I knew that MSNBC, CNN, Al Jazeera, BBC, all of these places, they'd call me because, you know, I have this big old you know, PhD and title, and, and I'm very respectable, and you'll see me in my tie, even out there, uh, you'll see me in my tie, and, and that sort of thing, and they'd love to speak to me because I'm so articulate, and, and that sort of thing. And I would say, with a, with a young American citizen who had no shirt on, with dreadlocks and tattoos on his neck, and uh, his his draws, his unmentionables showing, I would say exactly what he said, uh, so that the whole world and the nation especially could hear what the people were saying. Using his status and visibility, 
Stefan became a megaphone for the marginalized, and he insists that it is their fierce and unflinching courage that must be remembered. You had people who had never done, by societal standards, a good thing in their entire life that were protesting to save our democracy. And they didn't know that. They didn't know they were saving our democracy by being in the streets and by walking around in spite of a curfew, by, by standing in place for longer than five seconds in spite of the police rules that you could do that. They didn't know they were saving democracy, but they were. These are people that we call the thugs and the throwaways and all that kind of stuff. You had the police telling people to go back in their house. Homeowners standing on their lawns. Police talking about go back in your house. They telling the police, no, this is our shit. You go somewhere. To me, that's what democracy is. Nobody will ever remember it that way, and I hope people do, but these people did what we respectable people weren't willing to do. We respectable people will send an email and we'll send a letter, and we might make a call and ask for a meeting. But these people told people in power that your power rests on our permission. Darren Seals was a man whose experience and story might otherwise be tossed aside and ignored. He would not have been considered one of the respectable types. He said and did many things that would alienate the respectable crowd. For instance, his views on law enforcement officers. Fuck them. Shit. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like police. I don't condone in any police. I, don't, I just don't like cops at all. None of them. Not one. Don't respect them. Don't like them. Don't want to deal with them. And honestly, I don't think, I don't think we need them. I think we really need to police ourselves, and we need people who actually care about our communities to take care of our communities instead of outsiders just coming in. And, you know, it's kind of like, I don't even consider them cops no more. It's like they race soldiers. They come in our communities, and they, uh, they stalk us. And they, they, you know, they treat us like we, like slaves, you know? It's like a, it ain't, I don't respect it. I, I just don't like them. Darren took pride in his position as a truth teller and a representative of his community. And he was nothing if not a man of deep conviction and certainty. But many of his views were unpopular, including among the protest crowd. Darren spoke at length about how the movement had been co-opted by queer people or capitalized upon by phonies looking to make money and climb, with no intent of helping Ferguson. These examples demonstrate the internal tensions within the movement, despite shared histories. Darren, too, drew upon those that had come before him, recalling the roots, trunk, and branches of his conscious family tree. I always say my conscious family tree is what I call it. It's kind of like a mixture of people. It started with actually the rapper Tupac. He was the first person to kind of like, he reminded me of myself because he was a small guy, but he was so fearless. And growing up, I was always the smallest, but I was always the toughest. And nobody in my family could understand, like, because I was never scared of anything. You know, I don't fear nothing. So people always wonder, like, how this little dude is so tough, you know? And I kind of identified with him because he spoke up how he felt. And that's how I am. I speak how I feel. I really don't give a fuck how you feel about it. If it's the truth, I'm going to say it and take it or leave it. And I kind of identified with him as a person, more so than just a rapper, but as a person, I identified with him. So he dropped a lot of knowledge on me growing up. And through that knowledge, I like to research, like I said. I got to uh, watch movies like Panther, watch movies like Malcolm X with Denzel Washington. Got to read Malcolm X biography, Huey P. Newton biography, and then they went to Marcus Garvey. I learned about him around middle school, 
And these are the people I actually looked up to and taught me a lot. You know, they taught me the keys I needed to survive in, in the world, you know, mentally. Because physically, you know, it's like you just got to survive. You got to work, you got to grind, whatever you got to do. But mentally, those are the people that kind of like introduced me into the person I became. So that's kind of what those was like, I guess you could say, my inspirations. Darren's awareness of black history prepared him to handle the intensity of his situation, rejecting the notion that he experienced post-traumatic stress through those 100 days of protest. Darren claims that the intergenerational experience of black struggle provided him with a strong foundation. Personally, it's like it's like walking apart. Like they pointed guns at us, shot rubber bullets, tear gas. Well, I've been shot seven fucking times. That shit, like. I lost 20 goddamn friends in the past two, three years. You know what I mean? Like, that's real traumatizing. You know what I mean? That's really going. That wasn't, that wasn't, for me and the people I'm with, I was out there with the day one, the people who really started this movement. It was more so like, I right, America, we told y'all what was happening, now we showing y'all what's happening. It didn't traumatize us. We've been through it our whole life. We traumatized. If that's the case. Like, we traumatized. We was born traumatized. We come from slavery. Our ancestors, they went through that. We went through Jim Crow. We went through the crack epidemic. We went through fatherless homes. We went through miseducation. We never been educated. We've been miseducated our whole lives. He was born traumatized. Darren Seals was murdered on September 6, 2016. Found shot to death in a burning car a dozen miles from Ferguson. The sixth such case in two years. No one has been arrested or charged in any of these cases. Darren sat with us for his interview about three months before his death. Anchored as he was by history, he spoke about his future, a future that would never arrive. Honestly, man, I'm at that point in my life where I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know. I'm in the crossroads of my life right now, trying to figure out where is where do I go. I don't know if I want to leave this country. I don't know. That's that's the only that's the only thing that kind of hold me back. It's like my heart is in my city because the people here and I want to help and I want to change it, but it's so hopeless here. It gets to the point where it's like these motherfuckers will never change. You know what I mean? Then your family's here. I'm not really I'm not rich. I can't afford to just move my whole family. You know I just got a house in Florida and move in next month. So it's like taking steps and wherever life takes me. Hopefully, more opportunities can come when we create opportunities when we using our stories and social media and hopefully, I don't know. I don't know what's the next, the next I don't know what tomorrow we're gonna bring, but I definitely don't want to be here my whole life. It's fucked up here. History's rhyme is tracked by a rhythm, a steady beat of repression and resistance. Ferguson provided another verse, another measure, another 16 bars. Ferguson Voices Disrupting the Frame is a podcast, multimedia exhibit, and storytelling website. Visit fergusonvoices.com for the integrated experience, which includes photography and additional interview excerpts. Thank you to the people of Ferguson, Missouri, who participated in this project and trusted us with their stories. The Ferguson Voices podcast is a collaboration produced by Joel Proust and the Moral Courage Project team, written by Joel Proust and Amanda D. Narrated by Jada Woods and mixed by Brett Sanderson with original music from Lush Life. For more Lush Life, check out his recent mixtape, Idols and Enemies, and visit Lush Life online at theyoungandinlove.com. 
Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so each new episode of Ferguson Voices lands in your feed once it's released. Ferguson Voices is available on iTunes, Google Play, and other platforms. If you like what you hear, hit us up with a solid rating and share these stories with friends.